This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Season 2, Episode 11, Bullet, Steve McQueen, 1968. Bullet is an action thriller set in San Francisco and starring Steve McQueen. It was filmed on location in San Francisco in early 1968 and premiered at the Radio City Music Hall in New York City in November 1968. The film was a critical success and a box office hit. But the real star of the film, apart from Steve McQueen himself, was the 10 minute and 53 second car chase scene up and down the steep hills of San Francisco in that classic 1968 Ford Mustang fastback in Highland Green. The chase takes us on a tour of some of the city's most spectacular views at breakneck speed, whiplashing turns, and screeching tires. But first, let's focus on Steve McQueen, who he was, and what made him such an icon. Steve McQueen was an iconic American actor whose real-life persona transcended the roles he was playing. He always seemed to play himself, and that was Steve McQueen, and that's what his fans demanded. He was the king of cool at the height of the 1960s counterculture and a top box office star throughout the 1960s and 1970s. While he never won an Oscar, though he was nominated for one in The Sand Pebbles, he was an all-time Hollywood star. Actually, it was his personal life, and he was truly a graduate of the School of Hard Knocks, Steve. It was his personal life that really shaped the persona that the fans fell in love with and wanted more of. Terrence Stephen McQueen was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, March 24, 1930. His father abandoned the family when he was six months old, and at a young age, he went to live with his grandparents and Uncle Claude in Missouri. His Uncle Claude was like a father to him, and while his mother was married numerous times, he never got along with his stepfathers. So his uncle Claude played a major role in his life as a father figure. Again, his mother passed through a succession of marriages and, and husbands. And with each new relationship, she would send for Steve. But invariably, when Steve would come back from Missouri to either Indiana or subsequently California, he ended up locking horns with his new stepfather. And as a result, more often than not, he would leave the family home and he actually pursued a life of petty street crime. Academically, he was challenged as he was both dyslexic, dyslexic and deaf in one ear. By the time he was 14, he left the security of Claude's farm in Missouri, where he had been sent another time by his mother, and followed his mother out to California to Los Angeles. She had recently remarried, 
and she felt that this time her new husband would be a better stepfather to Steve. But unfortunately, when Steve arrived, the pattern of confrontation with his mother's husband continued. In fact, there was physical abuse both to the mother and to Steve himself. And Steve one time threatened his stepfather that if he touched him once more, he would kill him. As a result, the stepfather intervened with Steve's mother and had Steve declared incorrigible. And as a result, Steve was remanded to the California Junior Boys Republic, which was a kind of reform school. It's located or was located in Chino in the, on the outskirts of Los Angeles. And while he was there living in a dorm room environment with other boys, troubled boys, he began to mature and to change. And some of the rough edges that he had acquired through his mother's multiple marriages and living on the streets began to soften up somewhat. After a brief stint in the Merchant Marine in 1947, when he actually ended up in the Dominican Republic for a short time, he ended, he enlisted in the Marines, but he was not quite 18 years old and he required his mother's approval and permission to join the U.S. Marine Corps. He was sent to Paris Island boot camp to begin his training as a Marine. Initially, he did quite well and he was promoted to private first class. But due to a series of rebellious behaviors and confrontations in the Marines, he was demoted seven times to a simple private. He was honorably discharged, however, in 1950 after he had pulled up his socks and began to flourish in the Marines. He was honorably discharged in 1950 after a three-year tour as a young Marine. So he was 21 when he was discharged. And he always said that he enjoyed his time in the Marines and that it had made a man of him. In 1952, using his GI Bill benefits, he enrolled in acting school in Greenwich Village in New York. At the same time, he began earning some money competing in motorcycle races and car races out on Long Island. And both motorcycle racing and car racing continued to be a lifelong passion until he died. He purchased his first of many motorcycles when he lived in New York and competed in Long Island, both a Harley Davidson and a Triumph. While he was in New York, he landed a couple of minor Broadway roles in the early 1950s, which was enough to keep food on the table, added to the winnings that he got from successfully competing in the motorcycle races out on Long Island. But by 1955, at the age of 25, he decided to move to California and to go back to California in his case. 
as soon as he arrived, he landed a couple of minor roles on TV and Western films. Again, he was, he was certainly not a star, but he made enough money to keep food on the table. And at that point, he was married and he had one or perhaps two children at that point. But his big break came in 1959 when Frank Sinatra, who had had a falling out with Sammy Davis, and Sammy Davis Jr. had been one of Frank Sinatra's uh, Rat Pack sidekicks, Frank Sinatra had a falling out with with, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. And Sammy Davis Jr. was supposed to be in one of Frank's films called Never So Few. As a result of their falling out, Frank Sinatra offered the role to Steve McQueen. And that was Steve's first big break because Frank got to know Steve and felt that they were kindred spirits. The role that Steve played in Never So Few, again, was the first of many roles in which Steve essentially played Steve himself. He drove a Jeep at breakneck speed. That was his character. And uh, his character was always playing with switchblades or tommy guns or, or other weapons, street weapons, with which Steve was quite familiar. But... Rolls then continued to come his way as a result of that introduction from Frank Sinatra. And another big break came when he landed a role in The Magnificent Seven. And The Magnificent Seven, of course, was a, uh, a major film of the late 1950s. Several other film roles came his way in the early 1960s. But his true breakthrough moment came when he starred in the film The Great Escape in 1963. And with that starring role in The Great Escape, Steve McQueen was firmly established as a top Hollywood star. So that was 1963 when Steve's career at that point was well-established in Hollywood. So let's come back to the plot. Frank Bullitt is a San Francisco Police Department detective lieutenant, and his team of Delgatti and Stanton are assigned to guard a mobster called Johnny Ross. Johnny Ross is part of the Chicago Crime Syndicate, and he is due to appear as the chief witness before a Senate subcommittee on organized crime on Monday morning. Senator Walter Chalmers, played by Robert Vaughn, has personally tasked Bullitt with a round-the-clock guard on Ross's hotel room on the Embarcadero. Because, obviously, as as an ex-mafiosi, He is known to, they're expecting him to be bumped off at any time because the mafia obviously doesn't want Johnny to speak before the Senate subcommittee. So Johnny Ross 
is being guarded by Frank Bullitt and his team down at a hotel on the Embarcadero. John Stanton, who is one of uh, Frank's lieutenants, has the first shift. And while he's talking on the phone to Bullitt, and Bullitt is getting prepared to come in for the second shift, he unchains the hotel room door, thinking that it's room service. And suddenly, two hitmen burst into the room and shoot Stanton in the leg, but they hit Ross, or who they think is Ross, in the neck. Senator Chalmers, at this point, is apoplectic, and he holds Bullet responsible. And even worse, when Ross is taken to the hospital, he dies in the hospital. So Senator Chalmers, at this point, is left without his star witness at Monday's Senate hearing. So what is he to do? At this point, Frank Bullitt decides that something is fishy here, and he decides to keep the, inve the investigation open. But how can he keep the investigation open when the key witness is dead? So he actually sends what he thinks is Johnny Ross's body over to the morgue as a John Doe. In other words, he hasn't told anyone that Johnny Ross is dead. But Bullet also learns that Johnny Ross, just before he was shot, had called someone in nearby San Mateo. So Ross is scratching his head. So Ross's call prompts Frank Bullet to scratch his head. Who on earth was he calling in San Mateo because Johnny Ross was from Chicago? He didn't know, shouldn't have known anyone in San Mateo. So that sets Frank Bullitt on a mission to try to find out who this mysterious call was in San Mateo. So Bullitt jumps in his Mustang, drives down to San Mateo, turns up at the motel in San Mateo, and found, when he gets to the room where the call originated from, he finds a dead woman who's been garroted in that very hotel room. And her name was Dorothy Rennick. As Frank Bullitt starts going through the personal effects of Dorothy Rennick, it turns out that she was married to someone called Albert Rennick, and that Albert Rennick was, in fact, the man who has just been killed that we thought was Johnny Ross. The real Johnny Ross has taken Rennick's passport and airline tickets to Rome, and his plan is to flee to Rome, Italy, so that he won't have to appear before the Senate subcommittee. And he'd worked out this deal with Albert Rennick. Well, Albert Rennick now is now dead, but the real Johnny Ross has Albert Rennick's passport, and the real Johnny Ross is out at San Francisco International Airport about to board a flight to Rome so that he won't have to testify on Monday morning at the Senate subcommittee hearing on organized crime. Frank and his team rushes out to SFO, and as they're rushing through the terminal, 
They rush out to the plane, which is just about to close its doors. And as Frank enters the plane looking for Johnny Ross, Johnny Ross realizes that something is wrong. And he quickly runs off the plane through the back door of the plane and then starts fleeing through the airport terminal. A melee ensues in the airport terminal. Johnny Ross ends up shooting a sheriff's deputy and Frank in turn shoots Johnny Ross on the spot. And once again, Senator Chalmers, who turns up on the scene, has been thwarted and his Senate subcommittee hearing is not going to happen. So he holds Bullet responsible and then Frank Bullet simply drives home exhausted in his Mustang fastback where he finds his beautiful girlfriend, Jacqueline Bisset, asleep in his bed. I will grant you that the plot is somewhat thin, but with Steve McQueen, the plot was never really that important. With any film that Steve was involved with, the plot was almost secondary to the fact that it was a Steve McQueen film. So in this particular case, both Steve McQueen and the 10-minute car chase were the stars of the film. And even though the film is 52 years old, the car chase and its thrills and spills is as fresh as it was yesterday and equally heart-stopping and exhilarating. It acts, it lasts for 10 minutes and 53 seconds, the car chase, and it's exhausting to watch. But the adrenaline rush for 10 minutes is offset by some of the best and most spectacular views of San Francisco. Starting at Fisherman's Wharf, we're treated to expansive views and vertiginous plunges down steep hills through San Francisco, past beautiful Victorian homes, gigantic 1960s big American cars, squealing brakes, flying hubcaps, indignant drivers, threatening intersections, you name it, you get it all in this hair-raising car scene. And in fact, this car chase scene has since become the holy grail of any car chase scene in any film or TV series. The, the actual cars that were used in the scene were lighter weight Mustangs and Dodge Chargers because they had to lessen the weight so that as the cars came down the hill and went semi-airborne, they, they had to be lighter in order to get that airborne effect. The film Bullet won an Oscar for Best Film Editing, and of course, that was the editing of the car chase. As I said earlier, it debuted at Radio City Music Hall in New York City in October 1968. It was produced on a $5.5 million budget and grossed over $42 million in the United States. The Ford Mustang Fastback actually sold for $3.7 million early this year in January 2020. Steve was married three times and had two children. His grandson, Stephen R. McQueen, 
is an actor and has followed in his grandfather's footsteps. His second wife was Ali McGraw, to whom he was married from 1972 to 78, and she remained the love of his life. He died in November 1980 in Ciudad Juarez, where he had gone for some alternative cancer treatment. He had lung cancer. He had been a lifelong smoker. And when all traditional treatments in the United States failed him, he went to Ciudad Juarez in Mexico for surgery, and he died of heart failure. So that is the story of Bullet and Steve McQueen, a 1960s iconic counterhero. My sources for today's podcast include biography.com, IMDb, and personal sources. This is Jim Herlihy signing off for the San Francisco Experience from America's favorite city, San Francisco.